Uh, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning uh, to continue our, our study through First Peter. Uh, before we jump into that, uh, let me ask a quick question. Anybody in here a chess player? Anybody like to play chess? Yeah, there's a couple out there. I like to play. I'm not very good. I was on a, uh, a business trip last week, and the other pilot I was flying with likes to play chess. So we were waiting on dinner, and he suggested, hey, let's just have a real quick chess game on my, my phone here and see if we can finish it before the food comes. And about 12 moves in, I was drowning. Um, and then thankfully, the waitress showed up with the food, and I gave her a huge tip because it was going to be really ugly. But, but that kind of put me in the mind of, you know, for those of you that play chess, you know that if uh, during a, a chess game, your opponent moves a piece into position to attack you, and you focus on that one piece, and that's what you concentrate on to the detriment of everything else, you're going to lose the game, right? You have to keep the bigger picture. You have to think about all of your own pieces and how best to employ them, both offensively and defensively, if you hope to win the chess game. And really, that's kind of the same thing that Peter is going to get into this morning with chapter 5. He's going to give us some instructions for the church on how to deal with persecution, but as he talks to the church about what to do with persecution, he's not going to say, this is how you deal with the immediate problem in front of you. That's not what we're going to see. Instead, Peter is going to have some instructions that are more about how to employ the rest of our pieces, how we operate the church in between one another, between the leaders and the members, between the members themselves. He's going to focus on that, and he says that is your winning strategy, not focusing on whatever the issue is of the time. And so we'll see that the theme of this section this morning is that during times of trial, the church plays a key role in, in how to deal with persecution, but that role is to focus everyone on service. Service within the church, service to the other members of the church, and ultimately, of course, service to God himself. So that's what he's going to focus on this morning. And he's going to do that by laying out three precepts for the church to operate under during times of, of trial. Three instructions to the church. So that's what we're going to see this morning. So if you would, open to 1 Peter. If you're not there already, we'll read verses 1 through 7. And then we'll, uh, we'll jump into to what Peter has to say here. 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So there's... Peter's instruction to the church as he walks through this entire book based on dealing with suffering and persecution. And so the first thing that we're going to see in those first four and a half verses is the first instruction that Peter gives, the first of these three precepts is directed at the elders, and it's that they are to serve the church with humble diligence. Now verse one begins with therefore, right? And you guys know anytime there's a therefore, you have to figure out what it's there for. So this means that there's a new set of instructions that Peter is talking about, but it's based on something he's already covered. So the question, of course, for us is, in order to make sure this is in the right context, 
What is Peter referring to when he says, therefore? Well, if you go back into chapter 4, in that context, there's a new section that started at chapter 4, verse 12, that Peter Scarborough led us through last week. And that's what Peter's referring to. That section begins in chapter 4, verse 12 with, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. So he's saying, look, there's, there's going to be difficulties that come, and we know that he's dealt with how to deal with those individually in the, the previous part of the book. But then he gets to this part in chapter 4. He says there, there are trials. This is what you need to think about. And then in verse 17, he said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's the context. There are trials that sometimes are for our testing, and God is going to hold his household, his church, accountable for how they deal with them. That's the background. So Peter says, therefore, with that in mind, the fact that God is going to hold the church accountable for how it deals with difficult times, therefore, I have some things to teach you. So it makes sense that he's now going to address the church and the instructions for the church. And it makes sense that he addresses the elders first. Right, the elders are those in positions of leadership within the church. Right? These were men that were chosen from among the congregation and with the help of other elders to, to preside over God's local bodies. And so he says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. And that word exhort means to encourage or to urge, specifically to urge to a course of action that is necessary. It's basically pleading with someone to do the thing that is required of you. Right? This is necessary, but I'm urging you, make sure that you do it. That's what Peter's saying here. And before he gets into then the command, he says, therefore, all right, all of you elders in these churches that are suffering, I'm urging you to do something. But before he even gives them the command that he's urging them to do, he gives them a threefold encouragement there in verse 1. It's kind of Peter to start with encouragement. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and to partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Three separate things Peter says here by way of encouragement to the elders. First is, is he says, he establishes his position as a peer. He says, hey, I'm a fellow elder. What he's saying there is this is not top-down direction from an apostle to those that are not apostles, right? What I'm about to tell you, I'm grouping myself in with you. We're in this together because Peter was also an elder, of course. And so he says, look, here's the instruction. It applies to me just as much as it does to you we're all in this together. I'm an elder. I have a congregation that's suffering. I go through the same trials and tribulations leading the people that you do. So, so I just want you to know we're in this together. Then he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's a whole lot packed into this one. We don't have time to unfold everything, but it does three things, really. And first of all, it establishes Peter's credibility because he said, look, I, we're talking about suffering here, and I, I witnessed this happen personally. Right, again, going back to his status as an apostle, this isn't, again, to put himself above his other elders he's talking to. It's just to say, look, I, I know what I'm talking about here because I saw it myself. The second thing it does is set the context for what he's about to talk about. In case it wasn't clear, coming out of chapter 4, he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, he could have chosen a lot of other things to say there if all he was doing was establishing his credibility. He could have reminded them, I'm a witness of the miracles of Christ of the teaching of Christ, of the example of Christ. All of these things would have set his credibility up as an apostle, but instead he focuses on the fact that I saw not only everything Christ did, but I saw Christ suffer. So when we're going to talk about these things in this context, I saw how Christ reacted to suffering, 
who he was focused on when he suffered, how he persevered under suffering. He says, I, I have this firsthand account that I want to share with you. So it sets the context. And finally, it shows his humility. He did watch Jesus suffer. We're told in, in John's gospel that Peter was in the courtyard when Christ was going through the trials. We walked through all of that in the book of Mark. And we know that while Jesus was being beaten, mocked, spit on, falsely accused, Peter could see and hear everything that was going on because he was in the outer courtyard. But what was Peter doing while Christ was suffering? Was he, like he said back in chapter 4, verse 12, sharing in the sufferings of Christ? No. Peter was avidly and in the most strenuous language he could use, denying Christ. So Peter here, by focusing on the sufferings of Christ, is, is humbly saying, look, I, I know this, but it's not because I succeeded when I first encountered suffering with Jesus. I failed miserably. He's willing to, to tell them that. As we talk about this context of suffering, even apostles make mistakes. It's humility. But then he goes on to the third one and says, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. It's awesome that Peter flows from one of these into the other because by saying, I get to partake of the glory, he's talking about restoration. He just explained to the rest of the, the elders he reminded them of his failure, a story they would have been familiar with, and said, but with Jesus Christ, there's restoration. There's hope. I utterly failed, and yet I still get to be a partaker of Christ's glory when he returns. This is all very encouraging for the elders. Peter's grouping himself in with them. He's saying, look, I know what I'm talking about, but I made a mistake, and yet I was restored. So when your role as elders, don't get disheartened. He encourages them before he ever gets to the command. So having set the stage there with some encouragement for the elders, he now gets to what he is exhorting or urging them to do during persecution. Verse 2. <clears throat> Shepherd the flock of God among you. There's the command. It says, I, I urge you, elders, by way of encouragement, I'm, I'm urging you, shepherd the flock. Now, one of the things we have to consider is why Peter uses this particular analogy. Right? We know that in the New Testament, the church is referred to by a lot of different analogies. Peter used the household of God just a few verses before in chapter 4. The church is referred to as a building, specifically a temple, a body, a field of workers, lots of different ways. But Peter chooses this analogy as he talks to the church leadership about how they are to act during times of suffering. So why this one? Well, since he's beginning with the elders, it kind of makes sense because inherent in the analogy of a shepherd and a flock is a leader and those who follow the leader. So it makes sense in that regard. But it's not just that. This is a lot more personal to Peter. If you would, turn back to John chapter 21. John 21, starting in verse 15. Now, the context here, Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. This is in the 40-day period that he remained on earth, teaching the apostles all the things that they didn't quite understand the first time around. And then we have this story that you're familiar with, right? You know this story, but sometimes we fail to link the stories in the Gospels to what these particular apostles wrote later on. This story is extremely pertinent based on what Peter tells the elders in his letter. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. A second time in verse 16, Jesus asked the same question, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I, I love you. 
And Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. Jesus asked the question a third time. As you know, Peter is grieved because Jesus keeps asking the same question, which Peter feels should be obvious. Peter says, you know all things, Lord. I, I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. So when Peter is talking to the elders of the church and he says, look, this is how I want you to think about your job, shepherd the flock, it's because Peter received this charge from the mouth of Christ himself. This was a personal charge for Peter. Jesus said, I'm going to use you to shepherd my flock. And now Peter's just turning around and telling these other elders, look, this is what Jesus expects of you. Shepherd the flock. It's personal. So why then did Jesus use this analogy? Right, there's a lot of ways he could have put it when he gave Peter this charge. By the way, he gave Paul the same charge, and Paul saw it that way. In Acts 20, 28, Paul's talking to the elders of Ephesus, the church there on his way by, and this is the last time he feels he's going to get to address these elders, and he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So why did Jesus use this analogy? Well, if you think about it, everything that a shepherd does can be broken down into two categories. Right? And, and there's a lot of ways to look at this. Right? Whole books have been written on Psalm 23 about this, but... But everything a shepherd does really falls into one of two categories, protect and provide. That's what the shepherd does. It protects the flock from wild animals, from natural disasters, and he provides for the flock, making sure they have enough to eat and water to drink. Those two things. If you go back and read Psalm 23, you'll see that everything in there falls into one of those two categories, right? He leads me beside green pastures and still waters, provision, right? I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, protection. He lays a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's provision and protection. So these are the two things that Jesus, when he gave Peter this charge, had in mind. It's what Peter has in mind when he's giving this charge to the other elders. He says, look, you need to protect and provide. So how do the elders do this? How do they provide? Well, they teach the word. In Mark 6.34, we have an example of how Christ saw this. Mark 6.34 says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. All right, so here's the scene. Jesus comes on shore off a boat, and he's looking out, and there's all these people, and he looks at them and goes, man, these people are directionless. No one is providing for them. No one is protecting them. No one's doing anything for these people. And so what does he do? How does he provide? The verse continues, And he began to teach them many things. That's how Christ provides for his flock. That's what he expects from the elders. Elders teach the truth of Scripture. That's how they provide for the flock. Because we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, how do they protect? They protect by selfless sacrifice. Again, we see this in Christ's example in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 15. Jesus is speaking about being the good shepherd, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Others who are hired hands and not shepherds, who are not the owner of the sheep, see the wolf coming and leave the sheep and flee, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus protects his flock, in his case, by literally laying down his life. Now, the elders are not required to do that for us, thankfully, at least hopefully not. So how do they protect it's still sacrifice, it's just not 
sacrifice of their physical lives. It's sacrifice of time, of their spiritual gifts, their natural talents, prayer, study of the word, wise counsel. All of these things are the sacrifices that the elders of the church make in order to protect the flock. That's their protection. Now notice, too, that having brought this analogy and given this charge to the elders, the way he received it from Christ, Peter wants to make sure they're aware of one thing. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. He wants them to understand this is not your flock. This flock belongs to Jesus Christ. You are an under-shepherd. It's not your flock. This is critical, and we're going to see that Peter reiterates this theme over the next several verses in different ways. But it's crucial. All of us can probably think of, of churches, maybe in the news, who really were, were led by charismatic personalities who sort of saw the congregation as their own personal kingdom. Right? They could move the congregation in whatever direction they want. They could levy unreasonable burdens on the congregation. They could extract resources through guilt and shame. Right? It was really their own personal little kingdom. And Peter says, that is not the case. This flock belongs to someone else. Can I just say that, that the elders we have here understand this concept well? Those of you that know the elders at this church understand that they are fully aware and fully in support of the fact that this congregation does not belong to them. It belongs to Jesus, and they are merely the under-shepherds. We're fortunate in that regard. And so now Peter is going to explain exactly what this shepherding the flock should look like with three contrasting descriptions. Right? He says, look, don't do this, do this. It shouldn't be like this, but this way. Not like this, but do this. Three different things he's going to see. And unlike the descriptions that Paul gives of what an elder should be, some specific qualifications when he writes to Titus and Timothy, Peter instead doesn't focus on the specifics, but rather the internal attitudes and motives of someone who is to lead the church. The first one we see in, in the latter part of verse 2 is they should lead with a diligent desire. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Exercising oversight is a phrase that just means to look carefully into something, to diligently search out what is necessary to complete a task and then carry it through to completion. He says, that's what you should be doing, but not under compulsion, voluntarily. Now, there's two things that Peter really has in mind here, I think, based on the context and other writings, when he says you should exercise this oversight not under compulsion. The first is that an elder shouldn't feel pushed into the position. An elder needs to desire that position of his own accord. So no one should have to come to a man and say, look, we don't have anybody else. We really need some more elders. We're lacking. We need some leadership. I know you don't really want to do it, but we'd really like you to serve. And the man says, man, okay, I'll do it because you, you think it's necessary. Peter says, no, it shouldn't be under compulsion. It should be voluntarily. But the other thing he has in mind is not only the initial acceptance, but the ongoing continuation of the work as an elder. He said, look, no one should have to push you into continuing to do the work of an elder. There should be your own diligence in getting it done. No one should have to compel you, right, and be constantly saying, hey, didn't, didn't you say you were going to go visit that person in the hospital? You know, it's been a week now. Probably ought to do that. Hey, shouldn't you maybe you know, be spending some more time in, in study for your teaching? Hey, didn't you say you were going to take care of this ministry issue and, and it hasn't been done yet? There needs to be an idea of diligence that backs up the initial desire to take the post. 
diligent desire. We see the example of this in Jesus, and we'll see that all three of these that, that Peter gives is based on a personal example of Christ. Again, in John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Christ obviously talking about going to the cross. Now, at the time, those listening to him didn't understand that. But that's his meaning. He said, look, I I am going to go and and sacrifice myself, but it's not because someone else captured and killed me. It's because I went there of my own accord. This was my desire, and I'm going to be diligent to see it through no matter the cost. That's the example for an elder. The next thing we see is a service-oriented passion. He says, uh, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And then the next one is, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sordid gain. Some of your translations may say shameful gain. The idea here is that the elder should not be serving for any personal benefit to himself. Now, in some churches that might be financial, although not often. But the elder should not be serving because of the respect that it brings because of the authority, the control, the power. Peter says all of that is shameful gain. That shouldn't be why he's serving. Now instead, he needs to be eager. Now that's an interesting contrast. Most of us wouldn't consider eager as the opposite to selfishness. But that word means, uh, the eagerness means ready of mind. It means he's focused forward on accomplishing the task. He's looking forward to it. It's a passion that he has to serve in this capacity, a service-oriented passion. Now, that may sound similar to the the first one, but they're different. Let me explain it this way. Yesterday morning, I got up and our yard needed to be mowed. And I knew that. I knew it had to be done. And so I made a conscious decision to go out and mow the yard. There was a diligent desire, right? No one pushed me into it. I decided of my own accord to do it, and I was diligent to see it through and do the work necessary to get it done. So I had the first one of these. I had a diligent desire to make sure the yard got mowed. What I did not have was a passion to go mow the yard. That was not there. I was not excited about it. I didn't get up thinking, sweet, it's yard mowing day and it's 95. There was no passion. And Peter says that can't be the case for an elder. There needs to be a diligent desire, but that can sometimes be born out of a sense of duty, like me mowing the yard. He said, no, there also needs to be a passion and excitement to serve the people. I did not have that. He says the elders need to have both. Again, Christ's example, Hebrews 12, 2, says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy. Christ went to the cross knowing full well everything that it encompassed, better than we do, and it was still a joy for him. There was a passion there, an excitement to serve the people by sacrificing himself because it was necessary. Peter says that's the kind of passion that an elder should have. And finally, selfless integrity in verse 3. So the third thing, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Lording it over is a phrase that just means a domineering dictator. It means someone that is barking orders out strictly because of their position and expecting them to be obeyed unquestioningly. Peter says that's not the way an elder should lead. 
He shouldn't be giving orders to the church merely because of a hierarchical structure. Now, there is a hierarchy, we'll see. But he said that's not the reason or the motive behind the leadership. Leadership for an elder should be characterized by character and not just charisma. So he says you, you need to, to not just be domineering. But before he even gets to the positive part, right, he said don't be a domineering dictator. Before he even gets in this example to the positive part, he reminds them one more time of why they can't be domineering. Right? Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. One more time, Peter says, this is not your flock. These were allotted to you for a period of time to exercise some oversight and some leadership, but it's not your flock. So don't lead like it's your own personal kingdom. Instead, you should be examples. Elders are those that should set the example for the rest of the flock in speech, in conduct, in prayer, in study of the word, all of these things in public and in private. He said you need to set the example. Again, Christ demonstrated this, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. If anyone had the right to be a dictator, it was Christ. He owns everything. He made everything. It all belongs to him. And yet, the way that he led was to empty himself and take the form of a bondservant. Peter says, elders, that's exactly what Christ expects of you. The same attitude. Selfless integrity. Well, so far, this is a pretty uh, difficult picture that Peter has painted for the elders. This is a lot of work. He said, be diligent. You gotta have a passion. You can't do it for personal gain. You have to set the example at all times. This is, this is not an easy road he has just laid out for the elders. And so he began with encouragement in verse one, and he bookends it with encouragement in verse four. So he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's some encouragement for the elders. He said, there's a future reward. It's a hard road to hoe, yes, but, but think about what's coming. This is the same thing he did in chapter 4, talking to all of us as individuals and how we deal with persecution. Remember, he said the end is near. Right? The suffering is not going to last forever. Think about what's coming. He says the same thing for the elders. And again, he reminds them it's not their flock by calling Jesus the chief shepherd. Hey, under-shepherds, your job is difficult. But keep in mind, when the chief shepherd comes, he's bringing a reward for you with him. He left the flock under your care for a while and left. He's going to come back and reclaim his own flock. And when he does, you will be rewarded for your humble, diligent service. With an unfading crown of glory. The word for crown there is Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. Something provided for the successful accomplishment of a difficult task or competition. There's debate on exactly what Peter means by this crown. There are crowns referenced elsewhere in the New Testament that every believer gets crown of life, the crown of righteousness. There's debate on whether Peter means a separate reward here for the elders or just another reference to those that every Christian gets. I believe based on some of the things that we read in Revelation and, and elsewhere in the New Testament that this is likely a separate reward for elders serving in the way they served. Either way, they have a reward to look forward to. 
1 Peter 4.13, he said, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Keep looking forward, elders. Your job is difficult, but there's a reward coming. And finally, Peter's going to finish this section to the elders with a little note to the rest of the congregation about the elders' leadership. So he's laid out exactly what the elders are to do. They're to shepherd the flock. He's laid out the internal motives and attitudes that are required for them to do that correctly. He's reminded them of their reward. And then finally, he says, hey, but I need to to speak a moment to the rest of the congregation about the leadership of the elders. The first part of verse 5. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Now, the likewise there links this to the previous parts of the discussion. So really, a new paragraph starts after that clause in the middle of verse 5. And he says, I need to to talk to the rest of the the members that you need to embrace the elders' leadership. And when he speaks to younger men, there's some debate on exactly who Peter is talking to within the church. It is the masculine form of the the plural noun, so he could strictly mean the younger men within the church. But that construct would have also been used for a mixed group. He doesn't mean the whole church, because in the next clause in verse 5, he's going to expand this to all of you. So he's speaking to a smaller group within the church. Whoever it might have been made up from, Peter is addressing that contingent of the church that might have been hesitant to follow the elders' leadership. Whether that was the younger men, because they thought maybe they should be the elders, whether it was those that didn't think the elders really had the right. Maybe it was a group that thought that elder is just a made-up position and really carries no authority anyway. Whatever the case may be, Peter says, to those of you that might be thinking, I don't really want to follow the elder leadership, he says that's not acceptable. Subject, be subject to your elders. Peter says the first thing you've got to understand is the hierarchy that God put in place. That's why the likewise is there. He said, you younger men, this group that may be opposed to the elder leadership, likewise be subject to your elders. What does he mean likewise? Well, he just spent four verses repeatedly reminding the elders that they are not in charge. They are subject to the leadership of Christ. And so now to the rest of the membership, he says, and just as they are subject to Christ, so you, members of the church, are subject to the elders. Same hierarchy. Christ, elders, flock. Chief shepherd, under-shepherd, sheep. Be subject to your elders. He says you need to understand that. It's the same thing he said in 1 Peter 2.13. Remember back then he said, submit yourselves, same, same idea, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors. So if we are to submit to the human authorities that God has put in place over us, how much more, sh- more so should we submit to the leadership in the only God-ordained institution? Everything else is human institutions. The church is a God-ordained institution. So Peter says, you're expected to submit to that leadership even more so. Okay? So if we're going to submit to them, then what does that mean? Well, it means we support what we just learned about the elders, their humble, diligent service. We need to embrace that of our own accord, willingly, consciously. So how do we do that? Well, in order to submit to the elders, what is the first thing we have to know about the elders? That's not rhetorical. You can answer. 
What do we have to know if we're going to submit to them? Yeah, who are they? You can't really consciously submit to a random sort of, you know, anonymous group of individuals. That's not really willing, humble submission. So anybody know how many elders we have at Countryside Bible Church? This is non-attribution, by the way, right? No one's keeping score. Anybody know how many elders we have? Ooh, nice, 11. 11 elders. Name some of them. In this class, we can probably get all 11. Terry Tyler, Chaz Morris, Dwight Custis, Tom Pennington. Figured that one might have been first. <laughs> but we got there. <laughs> Who else? That, that's pretty good. We got five. Jonathan Anderson, yep. Senior associate pastor. Brian Chandler. Gary Amack. Yeah, that one I figured might have been second. He's a Berean. <laughs> He's a Berean, right? All right, I think, I think we probably got most of them. There's your 11 elders. So these should be men that you are familiar with because according to Peter, you are subject to their leadership. In order to be subject to their leadership correctly, you need to understand who is leading you. In 24 years in the military, I never served in an organization where I didn't know who my leader was or really probably three to four rungs of leadership above me. The church should be no different. We need to know who these men are. So that's the first step if we're going to submit to the, the leadership of the elders. There's some other reasons why we need to, to know who they are. Some of those are because we need to understand the nature of their work. These men, as much as you may think they do, they do more, I promise you. I had breakfast with one of the elders two weeks ago, and, and I didn't ask him, hey, what are all the things you do? But just through the course of us conversing over an hour or so, he just kept mentioning things that, that he was working on or in charge of. or it's like it, The list was just enormous. You should be familiar, at least with the kinds of things that the elders deal with, so that you understand what it is they're taking on in order to protect and provide you. We also need to understand what the requirements are for an elder because when there's a new elder candidate, they're presented to the church, aren't they? The way that works here, those of you have heard Tom talk about this, especially since we just ordained some pastors, he mentioned the process, but the, the men who are going to be elders go through a years-long process, a rigorous process of observation, of teaching skills, of doctrinal questioning and testing, of the way they run their family, the way they live their lives, and after the elders are convinced that they are elder material, then they present that man to the church and say, now we need your feedback. But you can't give informed feedback if you have no idea what an elder ought to be or the things that they're going to be responsible for. For the church to function the way that it needs to and either affirm or bring up legitimate concerns before an elder takes that role, you need to understand what you're affirming or what you have issues with. But finally, we need to know who these men are because we ought to be praying for our leaders. You can guarantee that because Satan hates the church, one of the prime ways he attacks it is by attacking the leaders. The same way he does in a family, by attacking the parents. We should be praying for these men because you just saw how difficult their job is. All of the things required of them in order to adequately, effectively, and humbly carry out the service of an elder. They need our prayers. They deserve our prayers. I guarantee they're praying for you. That's part of their role as an elder. We ought also to be praying for them. And I just want to say, in this church, 
we ought to be unbelievably grateful for the elders that lead us. It is not normative or common to have this caliber of men lead a church. Those of you that know these men know that they 100% meet all of the requirements that Peter just laid out as well as those that Paul lays out in Titus and Timothy. They are humble. They understand it's God's flock and not their own. They are immensely diligent and hardworking. They have a passion to serve you, not themselves. We're blessed to have these men lead us, and we ought to be supporting them in prayer. That's the application for those of us that are not elders for this entire section. Well, Paul talked to the elders. Now he has some things to say to the members of the church. He started with the leadership and said, this is what the elders need to do if the church is going to successfully walk through persecution. Remember, just because he hasn't mentioned it doesn't mean that that's not the context of this entire passage. It is. He says if the church is going to deal with difficult times, we need to start with the right kind of noble, humble, godly leaders. But the church members have a requirement as well. They're to serve each other with selfless intentionality. We see that beginning in verse 5. And all of you, so now he's moved from addressing the elders to addressing the church, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility. The first thing he says all the members need to have if the church is going to thrive during persecution is a servant attitude. Now that, that phrase, clothe yourself, literally means to wrap a garment or an apron around yourself. In Greek, it was most commonly used to refer to a servant's apron. So this was wrapping a servant's covering around you. And we know that's what Peter meant because he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility there, strictly speaking, or literally, is low-mindedness. We've seen that term before in, in this book. It means not to be considering myself, but to be considering other people. To be outward-focused. Peter says, you need to take time to prepare yourself to serve other people. And again, Peter gets this from a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. You guys likely know what that was. John 13, 4 and 5 says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus did exactly what Peter is saying. Right? He tied a servant's garment around his waist and served the apostles in the most humble way possible. By the way, it was really difficult to find a picture that was biblically accurate because 99% of them have Jesus still fully clothed in his robe. But that's not what happened. A Jewish male would never take off his outer garment. That was embarrassing and demeaning. But that's what Jesus did. He took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around himself and washed their feet with a towel that was wrapped around him. That's the imagery that Peter is calling. The whole church, every member in the church, needs to take conscious, dedicated steps to prepare themselves to serve the rest of the church. Clothe yourselves with humility. And it's another imperative. It's a command. Just like shepherd the flock was a command to the elders, it was not a suggestion. Peter puts this the same way in the language. It is a command. You must clothe yourselves with humility. We don't get off free. 
Now, this may look different depending on your gifts, right? We've, we've heard Tom talk about the spiritual gifts both in Romans and in, in 1 John. And spiritual gifts are given to every believer, and they are specifically given to equip the saints to serve the church. One of the steps that all of us need to take is figuring out where does my spiritual gifting lie in how I serve the church. And it's not complicated. I like the way Tom puts that, too. Whenever people ask him, hey, how do I figure out what my spiritual gift is? You know what he says? Just start serving. Do something. And if that doesn't seem to be a good fit, do something else. And then do something else until you find that place where not only are you being effective in your service, but it is not a drudgery to you. You have that passion like we just talked about with the elders. Serve. In the slightly modified words of JFK, if I may, Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. It's a good saying for your country, but more so for the God-ordained institution of the church. How are you specifically going to serve other members of this church? Because Peter says that's what has to happen if the church is going to survive and thrive during difficult times. Everybody has to be serving. Somehow. Find where you can serve and serve. So have a servant's attitude. And the next thing he says is you need to understand God's heart for service if you're going to do this right. If you're going to have the right motivation to do this, it can't be, again, out of obligatory duty. And so he says in the latter part of, of verse 5 here, for, right, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for, because, here's the reason, because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes Proverbs 3.34 there. You guys are probably familiar with that one. James quotes it as well in his book. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Opposed means stands firmly against. Listen to how Psalm 101.5 puts it. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look, there's pride, and an arrogant heart will I endure. God says, I'll destroy that kind of people. Proverbs 6.16 puts it this way. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. You know what the first one on the list is? Haughty eyes or proud heart, arrogance. But he favors the humble. That's what gives grace mean. Those who understand that life is not all about them, but they are here to serve Christ through serving others, he shows favor to that attitude. The first step in preparing our hearts to have a servant attitude is understanding God's view of pride and humility. He hates pride. He favors humility. I like what Augustine said. He said, humility is the vessel of all graces. Beginning with that attitude, that is how we appropriate God's grace to ourselves and show it to other people, through humility. So he says, that's what the members are to do. And then he has a second command. So here's the The third precept overall, he said, leaders, you need to serve like this. Members, you need to serve one another. And then finally, he says, the other thing that everyone needs to do is serve God. And how specifically does he say to do that? To submit to the sovereignty of a caring God. The last instruction Peter has for the church here in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 begins, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Therefore refers back to the reason he just gave in the end of verse 5. It's the same reason applied to both directions to the members. Because of God's heart for service and his 
is opposition to pride, then you should be serving one another. You should also be submitting yourself or humbling yourself to God for the same reason. Humble yourself just means to be brought low. It means to understand your position relative to God's position. So what he's saying is you need to fully embrace God's majesty and your corresponding poverty in every aspect. His majesty, your poverty. That's the attitude of humbling yourself. I like the way Grudem puts it. He says, among other things, this humbling will involve bowing to God's wisdom and accepting the twists and turns of his providence. I like that. The twists and turns of God's providence. Because very seldom do things run the way that we think or we expect them to run, do they? But God is sovereign, and the twists and turns of life that we encounter are his providence. We see this desire for humility throughout the Bible. Proverbs 3.34 was already quoted. I like the way it's exhibited in Daniel 10.12. So Daniel's been praying for Israel. An angel comes to Daniel and says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. He was heard because he humbled himself before God. That's what we're called to do. Now, we know we ought to do this, right? This isn't new, but it's difficult. Right? During the day-to-day busyness of life and all the anxieties and the worry and all the things we have to take care of, right? even though we know we ought to do this, it's difficult to actually do it on a recurring and consistent basis. So thankfully, Peter doesn't just drop the, the difficult desire of, all right, humble yourselves and, and walk off the stage. He gives us some things to consider that will help us humble ourselves before God by reminding us of several of the attributes of God. The first thing he says in verse 6 is, God is able and generous. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under what? Under the mighty hand of God. Hand of God is a phrase used primarily in the Old Testament to describe God's power. In Isaiah 48, 12, it says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Peter reminds us we can humble ourselves because God is able. He is a mighty God. We're not humbling ourselves before someone hoping that they have the wherewithal to be able to do what needs to be done. He is a mighty God. Again, we know this. We just don't often, on a daily basis, connect the power that set the heavens in place to the same power that we're trying to appropriate in our daily walk. But it's the same God. In some cases, maybe that's the problem. Maybe because we focus on how big and how powerful God is, we think, well, I mean, he's enormous and he's got, he's got a lot going on. He really doesn't care so much about my little financial issue, my relationship issue. That's not really that important to him. Well, that's not true. Again, in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God speaking says this to his people, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear the emphasis God is putting on that? Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you. He is able. He's powerful and yet still wants to help us. So how does he help? 
the latter part of verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. God has generously promised to exalt everyone who believes in him. That is not a requirement. God could be a just God and not exalt us. He chooses to do so because he's generous, because that's his nature. Now, he may do that in this life. You think about examples like Joseph and Job, right? They both started off in terrible circumstances, and by the end of their life, they had more than they began with. He may choose to exalt you in this life, but that's not a promise. What is a promise is that we will be exalted when Christ returns. When the chief shepherd returns to bring his flock home, then we will be exalted and we get to be joint heirs with Christ. That's the promise all of us have. Peter says, look, you can humble yourself because God is able and he is generous. Then he gets to verse 7 and gives us a way of learning to humble ourselves. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxiety on him. This is a phrase that modifies the command, humble yourselves. He says, this is how you can do it. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter says, God is attentive and caring. If we're supposed to cast all our anxieties on him, if we're supposed to bring him our worries, our fears, our uncertainties, and he's going to deal with them, then it means he knows what they are. He's paying attention. Peter may be quoting Psalm 55 too here that says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Peter says, look, you can bring all your anxieties to him because he already knows what they are. He's paying attention. We saw this in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3.12. When Peter was instructing us as individuals on how we ought to be doing good amidst persecution, he quoted David from Psalms and said, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. God is paying attention to you to your circumstances, to your issues, your anxieties, your uncertainties. He's attentive. And why is he so attentive? Why does a mighty God who set the heavens in place pay so much careful attention to you and I? Peter says because he cares. He cares for you. You are something that is dear and precious to him, and so he is paying attention, just like we do to our kids. Only he does it perfectly, unlike us. So here's the full picture that Peter's painting. God has a deep longing to care for us, which results in perfect attentiveness to our needs. And he has the power and capability and will to do whatever needs to be done to carry out this caring and attentive disposition towards you. Now with that as, as a backdrop, why would we not humble ourselves to that kind of a God? Peter gives us these to encourage us. So how, how do we go about making sure that we're doing that? Well, this is the primary way. I know, uh, you know it's a broken horse. Every time I get up here, the application leads to staying in the Word. Sorry, it's not my plan. Reading this, right? Peter just gave us four quick attributes of God. There are many others. Where are they? They're in here. You ought to be in the Word consistently to remind yourself of the kind of God that He is so that we can consistently humble ourselves before him. That's what we ought to be doing. So, to wrap up the, the full application here, right, Peter's talking about 
the church operating under difficult times. That's the whole point of his entire letter. He gets to this section and said, all right, look, God's going to hold the church accountable for how it operates under difficult times. So here's what you need to know. If the church is going to thrive, I don't even want you to focus on whatever the problems are. What I want you to focus on is the rest of your pieces. I want you to be serving one another. The elders need to be serving the church with humble diligence. That's their calling. The members need to be serving one another with intentionality. And everyone needs to be serving God by submitting to his amazing attributes. He says, if you have that right, if you're focused on your pieces on the board and the bigger picture of the game and not just focused on the one piece that is causing an issue at the time, you'll realize the game is over and you already won. But you've got to have the right focus. And the focus for the church is service. That's how we thrive amid persecution as a church. Let's pray. Gracious God who is able, you are a generous God. You are a God who, despite your infinite power, is individually attentive to our needs. And for a reason that we can't quite fathom, you care about us in an individual way. As that kind of an amazing father, God, we just thank you for what you have given us and the generous offer that you will exalt us at the proper time. And Father, until then, we pray that you would find us faithful in executing the work that is required for your church. That we would intentionally serve one another and take the effort to find those ways that you have gifted us to serve the rest of your saints. That we would give of ourselves, our time, our efforts in order to serve others and be outward focused. Father, we thank you for the leaders, the under-shepherds that you have placed in this particular body. And Lord, we lift them up to you now. We pray that you would continue to give them wisdom to know your word and to, to walk by it. That you would continue to give them diligence to do the hard work that you have given them to do. That you would strengthen them and give them continued integrity in their walk that they would be an example to the rest of us. That we would see Christ in them and be able to draw closer to Christ by emulating them. We thank you for this church as a whole, that you have given it to us, that we might become more Christ-like and therefore be able to speak the good news to the rest of the world that does not have a church. We pray now for the service, that you would bless the pastor as well as he brings your word, as he faithfully exposits your message to the rest of us as he provides for us that which we need for growth and righteousness. And we thank you for the fellowship that you give us in this church as a whole, in this class, as Bereans, and as joint heirs with Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.